purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. But we've also seen uh, challenges as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid in the midst of this tempest. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation. 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here. Hello, and welcome to Nomus Phone, a podcast series about current global legal issues produced by law students at Tilburg University's Global Law Program. I'm Ben. Today, we're taking a look at an area of the law that we have yet to address on the podcast, that of corporate law and environmental law, specifically, whether global investment can be reconciled with the environmental sustainability goals in the current global climate context. We set out to evaluate if socially responsible investment principles, or SRI, can be integrated into the global investment scheme and how the codification of these principles within corporate and investment law may be used as a tool to achieve their stated goals. Given the size and scope of the global investment market, we concentrated on an area where legal incorporation of SRI principles is already underway and has shown some success, that of sovereign wealth funds. And to that end, we're focusing specifically on the largest, most influential, and arguably the most ambitious in terms of socially responsible investing, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, my name is Beate Schorfjell, and I'm a professor um, at the University of Oslo Faculty of Law. My main area is uh, company law, which I have worked on in a broader sustainability context since I um, wrote my doctoral thesis. Scientists have identified currently nine planetary boundaries which we must try to stay within if we're going to achieve a safe operating space for humanity. Four of those currently identified um, planetary boundaries have been transgressed. That's a, that's a change for the worse from when the first report, Planetary Boundaries, a Safe Operating Space for Humanity, came out in 2009. So that's the, the space that we, uh, that we can operate within. And all the, the uh, eloquently formulated mandates or goals in the world doesn't change that fact. So we have to find a way to operate within uh, those planetary boundaries, which means dramatically changing quite a few things since we are on a path that is just pushing more and more against these planetary boundaries. And at the same time, we need to find out how to secure the social foundation for people everywhere now and in the future while staying in, within those planetary boundaries. That is the grand challenge of our time.
There is no shortage of climate markers suggesting that we are marching towards an uncertain environmental future. Scientific evidence has demonstrated that global temperatures are rising, polar ice sheets are melting, coastlines are shifting as sea levels rise, and catastrophic weather events are becoming more prevalent globally. Ongoing deterioration of the global climate has precipitated the urgency for new, innovative means to reverse the abundance of signs that suggest near irreversible damage to our climate. Incorporating principles of SRI has been suggested as a realistic possibility for doing so by fundamentally shifting global investment markets towards greater environmental accountability and sustainability. Hello, my name is Professor Benjamin Richardson. I'm a academic at the University of Tasmania, uh, Faculty of Law, and my main research specialty is uh, the financial sector and environmental law. But I'm an environmental law scholar who came to the conclusion that environmental law wasn't looking at the right issues. It was looking at, you know, regular companies, mining companies, manufacturing companies, our companies regulate them, but wasn't looking at the financial sector. So I, my, I've tried to carve out a new frontier of environmental law research, which is understanding how banks, insurance companies, investors can uh, help or hinder uh, the, the move towards sustainability. And past five to six years, that's included looking at sovereign wealth funds. We're desperately in need of new solutions to overcome what is a, a deteriorating trajectory for environmental governance around the world. We need to be more imaginative and think about new ways we can govern the global environment and therefore sovereign wealth funds should be on the agenda. Two impressive trends have been observed in global financial and investment markets. The extensive growth of sovereign wealth funds and the advancement of principles of socially responsible investing. Sovereign wealth funds are publicly governed institutions, but generally expected to operate as private actors to invest large reserves of state-owned assets in the market in order to meet the state's economic policy objectives. Some of these objectives include insulating the state's economy against unpredictable international markets or to accumulate wealth for meeting future financial burdens of the state, such as public pensions. Sovereign wealth funds are commonly funded through commodity-based earnings, such as oil or natural resource revenues, but can be also funded through non-commodity-based earnings, such as tax revenues. Currently, some sovereign wealth funds claim to invest ethically by considering the broader social and environmental impacts of their financing, and by instituting principles of socially responsible investment into their governance structures. However, few states have legally obliged their funds to invest ethically through embedding such principles into their governance structures, and sovereign wealth funds view themselves as predominantly financial institutions with the primary goal of enhancing investment returns. This contrast has provoked a significant tension between the fund's ethical aspirations and financial expectations. Since 2000, the sovereign wealth funds of Sweden, Norway, New Zealand, and France have been operating under legislative mandates to invest ethically by implementing some socially responsible investment principles. Socially responsible investment involves embedding operational principles that seek to curb unfettered exploitation of nature by ensuring that consumption of renewable resources occurs within their rate of regeneration, by limiting waste and pollution, and by conserving biodiversity. Proponents of socially responsible investment argue that it attracts an expanding population of investors who are conscious of the financial relevance of a company's social and environmental conduct and who view good business conduct as integrated with sustainable development. 
Advocates have forcefully argued that given the precarious environmental position our world is facing, there is a pressing need to integrate such investment principles into the global investment market, and that company and investment law should be included in the broader environmental protection discussions where they are typically disregarded. I think it's a very uh, important uh, shift in your focus to include investment and company law also, because that has often been ignored uh, in uh, sustainability discussions. But actually seeing what the law requires of businesses and uh, of investors and to what extent that law either encourages or prevents them from taking sustainability-oriented decisions is a very important uh, part of this area, which is why I'm also very excited to be, to be working in this area myself. The growth of sovereign wealth funds and the expansion of their investment mandates have made them incredibly influential actors in the global economy. According to the Sovereign Wealth Fund Institute, as of 2011, there were 52 funds worldwide, with combined assets of over $4 trillion US. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund has been widely reported as being the largest and most influential in global investment markets. The cumulative wealth and economic influence of the fund cannot be understated. The fund is among the world's biggest stock investor, owning over $600 billion of stocks in over 9,000 companies globally. Just last week, the head of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund announced that for the first time since its inception, the total value of the fund has exceeded a trillion dollars. By comparison, that is nearly three times larger than the economy of Norway itself, and enough to mail every citizen of Norway a $200,000 check. If the fund were included with other countries, it would rank as the 15th largest economy in the world, between Spain and Indonesia. With cumulative assets of sovereign wealth funds predicted to at least double by 2021, combined with a growing awareness of their economic leverage, academics and policymakers have argued that sovereign wealth funds are in a unique position to be leaders in sustainable investment and transform the environmental inclinations of global investors. Incorporation and active pursuit of such goals into the investments of sovereign wealth funds may be the driving force needed to shift the global investment markets and corporations towards environmental safekeeping for future generations. I, I, I think there's enough evidence already that sovereign wealth funds and many other kinds of institutional investors are shifting the debates in the global financial community as to what is acceptable investment practices. Um, climate change, for example, is no longer seen as a sort of a fringe ethical issue to investors, but in fact, it resonates as to the business case to act for the long term. They have a mandate to promote sort of intergenerational equity built within the very model of the sovereign wealth fund in Norway, I think is a, is a commitment to say, we're gonna look at long-term returns. But I've seen the Norwegians and New Zealanders as, as I think, two of the most interesting examples to explore in depth. Um, and Norway, I think, is well ahead of New Zealand in terms of practicing socially responsible investing. So if you're going to look at any example around the world, it does make sense to, to start with Norway and, and see whether they are, in fact, setting the best practice. Um, what can we learn from them? But it can, um, I think it can signal, it can bring respectability to social investing. When you've got a fund of that size that says we take ethical issues seriously, uh, it, it can make it easier for other funds that may be uh, umming and ahhing about whether to do so to say, well, look, well, this is what they're doing. 
they've got like a trillion dollars, well, we should do it as well. So I think it can help change the, the global normative uh, terrain, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Uh, and it, it's, I think it is nudging some of the other sovereign wealth funds in that direction. Founded in 1990, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund invests proceeds from Norway's profitable petroleum industry with an explicit mandate to meet future pension costs of the state. Broadly speaking, the fund has two main policy goals, acting as a vehicle for long-term savings to ensure that a share of Norway's petroleum wealth serves to benefit future generations, and avoiding investments that would make the fund complicit in unethical or harmful social and environmental practices. The fund itself is closely tied to the government of Norway. Its governance is shared between the Ministry of Finance, Norges Bank, the Norwegian Central Bank, through its investment management arm and external fund managers, as well as a government-appointed council on ethics that advises the fund on ethical investment decisions. The activities of all three are ultimately supervised by the Norwegian parliament, which approves the fund's investment strategies and scrutinizes its ethical investment decisions. We reached out to several members of the fund's various governance arms and the government of Norway for participation in this episode, but despite the fund's public commitment to procedural democracy and transparency in its operations, our requests were declined. Uh, the, the aim of the fund is uh, very simply put to, to secure uh, the welfare of the future generations of uh, of Norway. And then it has gradually become clearer through some uh, political campaigns and NGO campaigns that this should also be done in such a way that it contributes to sustainability. And this is actually now uh, reflected in the mandate. Uh, and the mandate says that the fund should aim for uh, as high returns as possible with moderate risks. And it is said explicitly in the mandate uh, that this objective is dependent on sustainable development in environmental and social terms and well-functioning, legitimate and efficient markets. Beginning in 2004, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund's Council on Ethics was formulated to take over negative screening of investments for compliance with the fund's ethical charter that is regularly updated, most recently in 2017. The council itself is comprised of five appointees of the Ministry of Finance, with various areas of expertise, including academia, diplomacy, science, and investment managing. Following evaluation, the Council submits recommendations to the Ministry, which makes final decisions on the exclusion or divestment of companies from the fund's investment portfolio. It has wide discretion in passing judgment on serious human rights violations, gross corruption, severe environmental damage, and general violations of fundamental ethical norms. Arguably, the largest impacts of the fund have been changing company behavior through active shareholder engagement within the companies themselves and through exclusion or negative screening of companies that violate the fund's charter on ethical principles. So what those regulations make clear is, is that there are two dimensions to its, its, its policy. One is uh, to avoid complicity with activities that are seen as um, morally reprehensible. And Norway uses international environment law as well as some global soft law standards, maybe like the UN Global Compact, to substantiate uh, judgments about whether something is unethical. Uh, and then secondly, the, 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 the Bank of Norway, it has a responsibility to practice responsible investment where it will act on the advice um, of the Council on Ethics if it thinks it's acceptable, but also it practices responsible investment with regard to a business case. Um, 
where you know financial due diligence may tell it tell it that it needs to get out of coal. So you've got two different um, normative frameworks that are shaping the fund: uh, a sort of an ethical complicity framework, and then a business case. Exceptionally, the fund also goes one step further than simply excluding a company from violating the principles of the charter, but employs a form of public shaming by announcing the decision and its justifications publicly, highlighting the problematic conduct of the company being excluded to the public. But I think the biggest uh, impact that the fund has uh, in terms of uh, the work of the Council on Ethics is through it's a unique way of doing this and that they go public with their divestments and the reasoning for it. And they give companies a chance beforehand. Um, and it's only if the company then uh, doesn't seem to be willing to or doesn't provide enough information that the, the council will then propose uh, divestment. And because the Council on Ethics is so well known around the world, once the divestment has been done, then that can have a very strong reputational impact, both for the company that is divested from and also more generally by encouraging other investors to, to focus on these areas. In addition to divestment and exclusion practices, the fund also employs an active shareholder mandate, whereby the fund remains as a vocal shareholder to affect corporate conduct from within. The corporate engagement strategy has shown some effectiveness, particularly in companies where the fund is a large shareholder. The mandate of the fund enumerates as part of its ordinary fund management the aim that it shall vote in all of the companies that it is invested in and makes clear to these companies its expectations for their operational conduct. Such widespread shareholder activism on the part of the fund's employees is practically onerous, given the scope of the fund's investment portfolio at nearly 9,000 companies. So the fund employs a team of consultants who vote based on a set of global voting guidelines drafted by the fund. These voting guidelines have been heavily criticized as inadequate, given they focus on shallow corporate governance issues as opposed to ambitious sustainability goals. Shockingly, the fund carries out this activism based on self-reporting of a company's environmental, social, and governance issues from the businesses themselves. This self-reporting is not required to follow any clear or defined reporting rules, and generally there is no requirement for independent verification of that information. How can the fund claim to be an activist shareholder in pursuit of stronger sustainability goals when those voting are doing so regarding largely inconsequential issues and based on unverified self-reporting from the companies themselves? Beyond the practical difficulties of engagement as a means to achieving sustainability goals, the fund must consider the wider impacts of engagement and its inability to be an effective means of modifying corporate behavior, particularly for a company whose very business is antagonistic to the very goals the fund purports to pursue. Divestment is really reserved for the worst offenders, and then engagement, I think, is used for those whom the fund believes are capable of listening um, and changing their ways. When you're going to engage, you've got to ask yourself, what are you hoping to change? If you would engage with a tobacco producer, it's hard, it's unclear to me if it's very business is to produce tobacco for people to smoke. What would be the point of engaging? Because the fundamental business model, the business activity is, is unsound. The use of engagement has to be subject to a condition that is, is the industry activity one that is capable of being transformed in a way that would meet our ethical, social, environment criteria? 
So it appears that the fund's explicit goal with its exclusion procedures is avoiding complicity in ethically problematic activities. But the fund's current approach may be insufficient for advocating socially responsible investment principles in the global investment market. Several strong criticisms of the fund's legal mandate and governance structure have been raised as needing to be addressed for the fund to truly achieve its mandated sustainability goals, particularly if the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is to be considered as a model for transplantation to other industries or countries. Well, the Norwegian fund, um, being the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world and also being very well known for its ethical guidelines and its Council on Ethics is regarded, or has been regarded at least, as a as a gold star in socially responsible investment. And in that sense, I'm sure it has had uh, some some influence. But uh, but I don't uh, fully agree with the, the, this is a success because, in my opinion, it is not. And uh, and and I think it is a very sad state of affairs, which is probably the case if the Norwegian sovereign were. Uh, wealth fund is uh, is one of the front runners when it comes to sustainability investment because then we are really in big trouble. Several major issues will need to be addressed regarding the legal framework of the fund if it is to truly be considered as a realistic sustainable investment transplant capable of having demonstrative effects in the global investment market. Two operational issues have been clearly enumerated in the academic writing on the fund's propensity to affect environmental change through its investment practices. Namely, the fund's management has not fully embraced the notion that sustainability is a prerequisite for good investment returns in the future, and the legal requirement that the fund be broadly invested in the whole investment universe to mitigate risk, rather than to focus the fund's investment into industries or areas that are leading the sustainability charge. Several specific criticisms have been raised from these operational constructs that should be addressed in order for the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund to live up to its potential to be a model for sustainable investment practices globally. The first major concern is that the notion of complicity is an insufficient standard for promoting sustainability in the global investment market for primarily two reasons. It places the threshold for divestment too high, whereby only gross or severe violations form the basis for exclusion and it is ambiguous when employed as a legal term to trigger consequences in response to acquisition of knowledge of a company's conduct by the fund. Um, and complicity, it's a, it's a standard that is, is very difficult to apply in the sense that what level of knowledge or support would make one sufficiently complicit. And, and it, it is very vague. The second problem is that it's sort of negative. It's not about promoting good, it's about avoiding harm. And I think for Norway, to simply divest from those who cause harm is not a good enough yardstick. I mean, the fund should more explicitly be a vehicle for promoting uh, the, the best, the greenest and the most responsible companies and, and practices in the world. To simply say we will avoid being associated with the most odious companies, the most odious projects, it sets the bar very high, the threshold for action, but it doesn't in itself provide an incentive for those to do good. Secondly, 
While a commitment to sustainability requires divestment from the most egregious businesses, the specific legal mandate permitting positive investment in companies that are environmental leaders is required for the fund to be truly successful on this front. Given its economic leverage, the fund could also be a leader in promoting transformational public policy that includes enhanced social and environmental regulations at the national and global levels. So the mandate in its wording says that the aim should be as high as possible returns with moderate risk and that that presupposes a sustainable development. But when you look at the way that the fund understands this, they see it that they should aim for high returns and then they should try to do it in a responsible way within that goal. The, the, the fund itself has proposed that it should be allowed to take a part of its investment portfolio and dedicate that to uh, unlisted infrastructure. But the, the Ministry of Finance suggested that this uh, should be denied. And unfortunately, the, the parliament uh, last month uh, agreed with that. So it seems that uh, one of the biggest barriers for the Norwegian fund really contributing to investment is Ministry of Finance. Most of them are happy to talk about greening the economy and uh, and contributing to sustainability, but they don't seem to be willing to change anything. They just want to sort of add this as some kind of green varnish to, to what we're already doing. Thirdly, despite being a fund for the citizens of Norway, the fund itself lacks a robust means for individual citizens to judicially challenge decisions taken by the fund. The fund does allow for public input into their decisions through annual meetings with non-governmental organizations to discuss policies and practices, as well as informal channels of complaint. But there is currently no legal framework for judicial challenges of decisions. As far as I can tell, it's impossible for any Norwegian citizen or foreign to legally challenge any decision or advice of the Ethics Council, their judgments are not amenable to judicial review. It's because the judge commercial or the discretionary, nobody's going to have standing to go to court. And I think this is, this is a weakness with, I think, every sovereign wealth fund in the world, that the accountability is ultimately political uh, through parliament and the media, but you don't have the capacity to take a sovereign wealth fund to court and say, well, you, you didn't invest in a way which was ethical or responsible with regard to your regulations. Uh, Norwegian citizens, it's not their own money that's at stake. It's the money that belongs to the state, and therefore they don't have standing. So if we're interested in legal governance of sovereign wealth funds, this is a significant problem uh, that we don't have uh, the accountability that the courts could provide. One final thought regarding the criticisms raised about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Given that the final decisions on ethical compliance of companies rest with the government, that the fund's mandate prioritizes return on investment over its sustainability goals, and that the fund is ultimately beholden to providing social and financial benefits for the Norwegian state and its people above all else, this leads to a significant paradox between its ethical goals and its financial obligations. Additionally, Critics rightly point out that the revenues of the fund come predominantly from its continued oil extraction, placing the fund in the awkward position of holding other companies to a higher standard than it perhaps holds its own industries to. Climate change in particular presents a moral dilemma for the fund, as they engage in exclusion of companies that contribute to global warming while simultaneously profiting tremendously from oil extraction revenues of their own. 
Academia has often referred to this as the Norwegian paradox, and critics have held this up as an example of hypocrisy from the Norwegian state regarding its espousal of ethical and environmental principles for others to follow. But, but as I said, historically, oil and gas exploitation has been regarded as legitimate and always got rich through through that. And that not, that we should then refrain from using that money to invest sustainably, that would just make things worse. So that Norway has got rich through activity that we now at least know threatens the very basis of our existence. That, in my opinion, strengthens the moral imperative for Norway to use that money to contribute to the shift to sustainability. It's also the only thing that makes economic sense. Uh, but the, so in my opinion, the paradox would be, and unfortunately is, if Norway tries to contribute to sustainability through the fund and then at the same time opening up new areas for oil and gas exploitations in one of the most vulnerable areas in the world, that's a paradox. That's hip, hip, hypocrisy. So it's no wonder that uh, the Norwegian state has got sued. Together with with the, the 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 very extremity of Norway's wealth, I mean the fund is so large, and Norway is in such an extremely luxury luxurious situation with all this money, and and that together with the 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 source of the money, I think Norway is one of the countries in the world that has the strongest moral imperative and the possibility to contribute to sustainability. So the question remains. Could the governance and sustainability model be a successful transplant in other industries or countries hoping to instill socially responsible investment principles? And could the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund be an inspiration for change in the global investment market? Arguably, the legal governance model developed by the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund puts it in a unique place to affect change in the global investment market that is needed to contribute to reversing the detrimental effects we already observe in our environment or at the very least to prevent further environmental degradation. And the size and scale of the fund make it a powerful global player to serve as an inspiration for adopting similar governance and operational aims. I think other countries are capable of developing the same sort of legislation. Uh, the model is capable of being transplanted. The, the, the barrier is sort of political. Some funds are able to make progress even without changing the law. I think the Norway model is good because it's codified into to law um, to avoid overly discretionary interpretations about ethics. It looks to international standards as the benchmark, both in formal treaties that Norway has ratified and soft law. Uh, there's public disclosure of the website, annual reports, uh, reporting to the Norwegian parliament. And the uh, Norge Bank Investment Management, which is within the Bank of Norway that has day-to-day -day management, uh, also has regulations that require it to look at responsible investment. Some spillover effects into other investment management areas have already been observed and may represent a small step in the direction of increasing socially responsible investment globally and fundamentally transforming the investment mentality for the betterment of the global environment. One of the things that's very interesting is, is in other areas of the law, we're starting to see some recognition of the need for social investing. One of the benefits of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and, and people debating about you know, does it do its job properly on ethical issues is that there's a spillover effect in which other people are now asking, well, how, what about other investors in Norway or other countries and what could the law do to promote change? And that's come about. Uh, I think because of a broader debate that's been around now for about a decade, 
in which people are looking at sovereign wealth funds and they're looking at what other funds are doing and saying, well, um, what more could what more could, could governments do uh, to take this further? Let's also not forget that the fund operates in a broader economic system that many argue is not functioning properly for our current environmental and climate demands, and therefore may counteract any robust efforts to transform the global investment market. We are on one planet, and uh, one of the reasons that this is not properly understood is this misleading dichotomy between economics and ethics. People think they are being really rational, whether they are politicians or fund managers or business leaders or whatever they are, when they say, well, first we must secure a good economic return. And then we can think about these other issues, which are then put into a box of ethics. But it's actually not even about ethics. It's about our survival. Environmental groups realize when governments don't act, how can we leverage change to make the world a better place? They've made a strategic decision to try to change the world, uh, not through governments, but through through the financial sector. The, the, the fund's mandate and this idea that there is less risk if the fund is invested broadly in the whole investment universe of listed companies ignores the, the fact that if business in general is still on the business as usual path, which is a very certain path towards a very uncertain future, to use a metaphor, it is headed towards a cliff, then that doesn't make it any less risky if they are all together headed towards the cliff. There is a fundamental limitation, um, and that is there's virtually no questioning of, of whether you can have sustainability in a world of global capitalism. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is not questioning concepts like open financial markets, private investment, economic growth. Those values are, are off the agenda. Uh, but, but as the Anthropocene intensifies, as our downward trajectory intensifies, those sorts of questions about the very sustainability of the system, as against the sustainability of individual companies, uh, has got to be uh, part of the debate. And so ultimately, uh, we can debate ad nauseum, you know, is the Norwegian fund good in targeting the bad apples, divesting and engaging with them? But that doesn't get us far enough. I think there's issues about the system, about markets, investment, growth, those elements that uh, are really the, the framework within which the debate, I think, has to engage with. Um, and I, it's inconceivable that those system elements are going to get us through the rest of the century without further and unacceptable environmental trauma. Nomus Phone is a production of students in Tilburg University's Global Law Program. This episode of Nomus Phone was produced by me, Benjamin Wiles, and Laura Kasny. We thank Tilburg University Law School for supporting this podcast. And thank you to Dr. Bieta Schofel and Dr. Benjamin Richardson for your enthusiastic engagement with our podcast in this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our SoundCloud and Facebook pages to stay up to date on our most recent episodes. And the Nomosphone team is happy to announce that we've recently launched our own website. You can find us at www.nomosphone.com. And if you like what we do, please leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps get the word out to others about Nomosphone. Thanks for joining us, and until next time. <laughs>